Loneliness and Shame, from the sermon series, The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Mike Yee. Good morning, good morning. Happy December. We're done with Thanksgiving. Thank God I'm so sick of turkey. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I am done. Now we can look forward to the two most important holidays out of the year. Christmas and December 29th. You know what happened on December 29th? On December 29th, 1979, the world was blessed (laughs) with one Michael Yee. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It is the second most important birthday out of the year in, in my family. <laughs> um, <clears throat> for those of you who are not a regular attender of our church, if you are, or if you are uh, visiting us for the first time, um, I am Pastor Mike, and I am one of the two spiritual formations pastors here in this church. Now, um, in spiritual formations, uh, we all kind of like have a, a forte. Um, I'm, a, I'm the pastor kind of over uh, the emotional health side of spiritual formation. Pastor David is, is the expert in everything else. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so when, uh, when we, we decided to have this, uh, this series on the soul of shame, this spoke really, really deeply to me. It's a topic of interest for obvious reasons, both as an educator, as a person who um, teaches emotionally healthy spirituality, but also, also as a sufferer of shame and one who, is, who has had and is having victory over shame. Um, this week, we are going to be talking about how shame and loneliness connect because they are very, very similar things but they are very different. One affects the other. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look into a very, very familiar story. For those of you who have been a part of church at all, you've probably heard this story before, but uh, I wanted to dive very, very deeply into this story about Jesus and a woman who is at a well. So if you want to turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 23, and if, um, if you don't have a Bible with you or anything like that, we're going to have it right up here on the screen, so you can just follow along. But um, <clears throat> John chapter 4 says, and this, this, um, this is the word of the Lord, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, apparently Jesus, even the Son of God gets tired, um, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He said, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you know, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Yes, what you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Hmm. Jesus, your word fills us. It fills our thirst. It is living water, Lord. When we hear your word, when we hear your teachings, when we hear your stories, something in our souls feels fuller. God, as we jump into this message, the message that you have crafted for us, Lord, let our souls be filled today. Let us be blessed with your words today. Thank you, Jesus, for everything that's about to take place we pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so, I have had the privilege of spending this entire year, my last year before I'm over the hill. <laughs> I'll be 40 this year, okay? You know, they say that 40 is new 30. That's not true. 
not true. 40 is still 40. <laughs> Let me tell you. But, you know, um, I, like when, when my birthday happened last year at 39, I immediately went into kind of a, a, a reflective time period. And over this entire year, I've been reflecting upon the earlier parts of my life. Being that I am on the the figurative, metaphorical top of the hill, looking over on the other side into the nothingness, I look back and I can see where I came from. And it's funny, I can break down by decade some of the themes of my life because that's as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, um, we like to see themes in things. Um, so, <clears throat> so this sermon is kind of a giant reflection. And I'm going to take you through the di- some different parts of my life that um, is very, very relevant to the topic that we talk about today. Okay. So as I, stop, uh, as I step on top of this proverbial hill and I'm looking back, What I see, first of all, in my first 15 to 20 years is this dark cloud of loneliness. It is this dark cloud of aloneness. Because here's the thing. Here's here's the thing, folks. When a baby is born, they have an innate need for three things. They need love. They need acceptance. And they need respect. Love, acceptance, respect. They have an innate need for it. As a matter of fact, all human beings are born with that need. And the first person they turn to to fulfill that need is the ones who gave birth to them, naturally. You know, you can almost see it when an infant looks back at you. It is almost like you can read in their eyes Am I worthy? Am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Psychology states that there's this concept called mirroring, right? And psychology states that the baby will look into other people's eyes and based on their reaction, they'll react that way too. And so when a baby is born, you see the baby, your natural reaction is, ah, you're so great, you know? The baby thinks, oh yeah, I'm great. (laughs) That's how a baby works. Right? Because he's being filled with love, and so he responds in love. That's the way that babies work. But unfortunately for me, growing up, my first 20 years of my life, um, my parents didn't really love me the way that one should. I don't fully, I don't blame them. They didn't know any better. They come from a war-torn country. They don't, they don't have emotional health, things like that. I don't, I, I don't blame them at all. Right? But this is what they did. Their love for me, their respect for me, their acceptance of me was dependent upon my performance. Because you see, they had big dreams for me. Big dreams. From the moment I was born, big dreams for me. This is not a joke. This is, this is an actual fact. Okay? Outside of mommy and daddy, you know what my first word was? Stanford. That is not a joke, folks. My parents taught me to say Stanford because their dreams for me was for me to go to Stanford, to graduate from Stanford with $100 million worth of debt, 
and become a doctor of some sort, make a billion dollars, and then, and only then, would mom and dad love me, accept me, and respect me. Only then that would happen. And so this tank that I had in my heart that needed to be filled with love, acceptance, and respect remained empty in my household. Now, on the same, on the same note, one would think, all right, you're not getting love at home. Where are your friends at? Where are your peers? Well, didn't really have too many of those either. I didn't really have too many friends. I didn't really have too many people I had relationships with outside of my family growing up. Because here's the thing, in their efforts to make sure that I got into Stanford, I was super sheltered. I wasn't allowed to go out. I wasn't allowed to connect with people. The only relationships that I had was with my brother, who was five years younger than me, and my cousins, who are four years younger than me. That was my community. You know? And they say, they say, you mature only as fast as the company you keep. And so... My maturity level was probably about five years behind of what it should have been. I lacked social skills. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to connect with people my age. And so therefore, outcast, lonely. I needed my parents to fill that tank in my heart. I needed my friends or people to fill the tank in my heart. And it wasn't big gaping hole. This is what happens when your basic need for love, acceptance, and respect is not met. There is a term for that, folks. It is called loneliness. That is what it means to be lonely. Because here's the thing, folks. I had an epiphany, though. I had an epiphany, okay? Because that's what happens when you turn 40. You have epiphanies, right? I had an epiphany. I was looking back upon my life and I was looking and I'm feeling sorry for myself because I didn't have people growing up in my life. But like God and I had a conversation. He's like, slow down, child. You're being a little emotional right now. You didn't have no people in your life. I want you to see that. In key moments in your life. No, you didn't have very many friends. You didn't have a thousand people like banging on your door to be friends with you. But in key moments of your life, I had people there for you. I did. And so I asked the Lord, Lord, why do I still feel this emptiness in my heart then? I came to the conclusion, folks, that loneliness, that emptiness, that's what loneliness is. Loneliness is that emptiness that you feel. Okay? Just, just wanted to define that. It is that emptiness that you feel when you don't have those three basic needs. Okay, That emptiness that you feel, the loneliness actually has very little to do with the amount of people in your life. Because do we not know people who are surrounded by people? People are always giving them love, attention, and things like that, and yet they report being lonely. We're in the Northeast. We can't go more than two feet without running into somebody, and yet we're lonely. On the other side, you have hermits who live in the middle of Nebraska with 100 miles between them and the next person, happy as a clam, completely content. I have come to the conclusion, my epiphany is, is that loneliness has very little to do with 
being alone in, in, the, in the strictest sense of the word. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And what, what I want to do is we're going to pursue three questions today. First of all, I want, I want to understand the problem. So we're going to ask the question, we're going to ask the question, what is at the root of loneliness? And then we're going to ask, what is the cure for loneliness? Because we're all interested in the cure, right? And the third question we're going to ask is, where do I find this cure? It's not at CVS. <laughs> Promise you that. So let's talk, let's, let's jump into the first question. What is at the root cause of loneliness? Let's, let's, let, let's look at that right now. What is the root cause of loneliness? And I'll give, I'm going to give you the answer straight away just so that you have it in your head. The root cause of loneliness is shame. Shame is the cause of loneliness. In our story today, Jesus, tired from his journey, It's about midday, and he's sitting down at this well trying to catch his breath, right? And something very unusual happens here. It's very, very unusual. There is a woman who comes to this well in the middle of the day to draw water. Now, the reason why this is so unusual was noon is not the time you come to draw water in the desert, okay? This is a desert environment. Noon is where the sun gets very, very hot, and... <clears throat> we, we, the, as, we, um, as we kind of um, read into the passage a little bit, we come to the conclusion that she does this for a reason. She's actually lonely. Because here's the thing. Um, back then, what would happen is the, the women, the Jewish women and the, and the Samaritan women at the time would get, literally gather around a water cooler every morning. Every morning, they would come out with their buckets right at the crack of dawn where it's still cool, and they go sit there, and they draw their water for the day, and they sit there, and they gossip, they chitter, they, 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 um, they uh, sit there and commune and connect. That's where the community was. And so the fact that this woman is not drawing water at the beginning of the day, instead going during the hottest part of the day, tells us that she is a little bit lonely, that she has a reason for not wanting to be a part of that community. She has this reason, right? Um, The other thing that really jumps out about this woman is the fact that she's had five husbands, right? Scripture tells us she admitted in front of Jesus, I have had five husbands, five husbands, and the guy I'm living with right now, not my husband. He has, he, she has admitted this, okay? Now, the first thing, the first conclusion that we as a people immediately jump to is like, wow, she must be really promiscuous, right? She has trouble controlling her passions, And so she's sleeping around. She has a lot of lovers. But folks, the scripture doesn't say she has had many lovers. She doesn't, the scripture doesn't say she's had five lovers. She says, scripture says she has had five husbands, five committed relationships. If you are just trying to increase the number of your lovers, trying to satisfy yourself, you don't go through the trouble of getting into five committed relationships. Because here's the thing, folks, all right? Uh, women back then had very, very little power, if at all. They didn't have the power to go and initiate a divorce, 
They just didn't do it. Men divorced women. Women did not divorce men. It just didn't happen. It didn't work that way. So the fact that she has had five husbands tells us either there are five men who have divorced her or five men that she has been married to that have all died or a combination of both. What do you think that does to your reputation? Especially in a society where they believe in a lot of superstitious stuff. She may believe that she is bad luck. That there's something broken about her, so messed up about her, that anyone who comes in contact with her would immediately inherit that bad luck. That's why the husbands died. That's why the husbands divorced her. You know, and this is probably the reason why she separated herself from the community. She didn't want to hear it anymore. She didn't want to hear it anymore. She didn't want to feel the shaming words anymore. Let me go back to the definition of shame that Pastor Peter shared with us last week. Okay? The definition of shame is the pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed human being, fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the human community. The pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed being, fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the community. Do you know, folks, we all struggle with shame to various degrees, some worse than others, but do you know that shame has a voice? It has a voice and it sounds like someone you know, okay? I, um, being, being a pastor in emotional health, I get a lot of people who come to me and who want to be counseled and who want, who want to stay with me. And inevitably, as we're doing the counseling, what happens inevitably is that they will say something about themselves that is inherently negative, that they absolutely believe. They'll say, I am to this, I am not enough this, and this is why. They will inevitably say that. And you know, I have a question for them. I'll ask them a question immediately afterwards. Maybe if you have been counseled by me, you have heard me ask you this question before. Hey, whose voice is that? Because that doesn't come from God. And they'll go, they'll, they'll come, come up with some excuse, be like, oh no, it's just a fact, it's not a voice, blah, blah, blah. But if you really think about it, it's a voice. It is the voice of shame. And it usually comes from an authority figure. Somebody who has had power over you, power and influence over you at some point in the past. Most of the time, it's either a mom or a dad, but it could be friends. It could be a community. It could be a, a relative of some sort. Somebody who has had power over you has declared something about you, some, some, some shameful thing about you. And now, because it comes from an authority figure, you believe it. And that message repeats over and over and over and over again. You know, shame has a voice. Shame has a voice, but it also says stuff. What is the message of shame? The shame, the shame voice will always say the same thing. It will say something along the lines of, you are not enough. There's something wrong with you. You are lesser. You don't matter or you're a mistake. Shame tells us that. And again, because it's in the voice of an authority figure, you're 
You have a tendency to believe it. You're too fat. I'll bet if you lost 20 pounds, you'd look so good. Your thighs are not proportional to the rest of you. Let's see what we can do to slim down those thighs a little bit. Then you'd look so good. Maybe some of your mothers have told you that. It's the voice of shame in your head. Or maybe some of you have heard this one. Why are you so stupid? Why are you so dumb? If you worked as hard on your studies as you do video games, you'd go to Stanford. But I guess being a gas station attendant for the rest of your life, it's not so bad, right? Or men, men, gentlemen, let me talk to you. Why are you so sensitive? Why are you so sensitive? Why are you so emotional? You're not manly enough. Why aren't you stronger? You're so soft. That is, a, that, that is a trigger word for men, right? You're soft. Folks, this is what the voice of shame sounds like. Even right now, as I read off some of this, you're hearing that message in your head, in mom or dad's or friend's or somebody's voice. That voice of the authority figure is saying this message to you, and so you believe it. You believe it. And here's the thing, shame seeks to keep you lonely. That is the connection there, okay? The cause of, the root cause of loneliness, that empty feeling that you feel in your heart is shame, the voice of shame. And here's the thing, the voice of shame wants to tell you lies, absolute lies, that you are not worthy that you are not enough, that you don't matter. Those are lies straight from the pits of hell. They are. Those are the shaming words. And what, they, what shame wants you to do is he wants to split you away from your community. Just like this woman, this poor woman, who has heard the fact that you are bad luck, she couldn't handle it anymore. I mean, we don't know, I, I don't know exactly what the community is back then, but... I'll bet there was some good in that community. Maybe there were, there were some women who could have given her what she needed, but instead, because of this message of shame in her heart, she chose to go out to the well at noon rather than in the morning with the rest of them. Shame seeks to keep you lonely. Shame seeks to perpetuate the emptiness that you feel in your heart. <clears throat> it's a pathological belief that you are unworthy. The key word here is belief. You have these voices of shame in your head, and if you believe it, that's what gets you lonely. The root cause of loneliness is shame. So that's question one. You guys got it so far? Okay. The root cause of Loneliness, that empty feeling you feel in your heart, is shame. 
Question number two, question number two is, what is the cure? What is the cure to shame? I mean, what is the cure to loneliness? Okay. Um, <clears throat> we've already established the fact that it's not more people. It's not. We've already figured that out. Okay. Let's go back to this poor woman, right? Who she said, who she said she had five husbands and the guy that she's living with is not her husband. Here's a question. Okay. Why does she keep getting married? You would think after like the second divorce, be like, I'm done. Done with men. Done with, done with trying to make this marriage thing work out. It's easier to be single and poor. One would think. But she went back five times. And the only conclusion that I can come to is the reason why you would continue to subject, subject yourself to five different marriages is if you're looking for something. Or perhaps you're looking for someone. Folks, here's the way that we have a tendency to cope with loneliness. First, we try to fill our lives with, with people. When that doesn't work, we put our hope in an ultimate person, right? We do. When we're single and we feel lonely, we feel that emptiness in our hearts, and we don't feel like we're loved, accepted, or respected, we say, I need a girlfriend, I need a boyfriend. That, if I can get that person, they will tell me everything that I need to know to fill up this heart. I need a spouse. I need a spouse. They will tell me what I need to hear. But we all know, those of us who are married, we all know that just because you've gotten married doesn't mean the loneliness necessarily ends. There are a lot of lonely people in their marriages in this room right now. And so you know what you do? I need a child. I need a baby. And the baby will give me everything that I need. But as we have seen, folks, in my own personal story, what folly that is to put your hope in a baby to fill this gaping hole of loneliness in your heart. There is, here's, here's some truth for you. Okay? There is no person here on earth that will fill that gaping hole in your heart. There is no person in this entire world who is capable of doing so. And to put that kind of expectation on someone is unfair. It really is. Can we, can we perhaps come to the conclusion that perhaps this woman who is getting married four or five times was looking for the one, the one who would tell her she is enough, that she is not bad luck, and that she is loved and accepted. Perhaps that is what she is looking for. My first 20 years, cloud of loneliness, the next decade, 20 to 30, that wasn't a very good year for me either. It really wasn't. Because here's the thing. In my 20s, I was what I would call a serial dater. Now, I know when you immediately think of that, you jump to the same conclusion as when you heard five husbands, right? You say, oh, you, you dated like 100 different women, things like that, you scumbag. You know? No, no, no. No, no, no. I was a serial dater. I had lots of girlfriends, but I had long relationships. Like, I would date one girl for two to three years, and when that didn't work out, I'd go right on to the next girl, 
and then another two, three years, you know? And that's what I would do. I wouldn't, and I'm, I'm, I feel so sorry for this. I really do. If I'm really honest and, I'm really, and I really think honestly about myself, I wasn't even that into some of the girls that I dated. I wasn't really particularly attracted to them. They were just there. And so that's what I did. Because here's the thing. I had a gap in my heart that needed love, acceptance, and respect. And here's the funny thing. What would inevitably happen is I would put these expectations on the girl, and when she couldn't come through, I would try to manufacture those things. You know how? By shaming them. You are not pretty enough. And the reason why I would say that is because I don't feel attractive. Okay? You, you are not good enough for me. And it's because I didn't feel good enough for anybody. And so when, the, when those women, God bless them, found the courage to walk away from me, I would just find another one and repeat the cycle. And that's how I lived through, through my 20s. I was looking for something. I was looking for the cure to my loneliness. But here's the thing, folks. I was looking in the wrong place. I really was. Okay? Because here's the thing. The, um, the concept of looking for an ultimate one isn't actually too far off. It's, it's really not. It's not too far off. Let's look at the other character in this story that we have. Let's look at Jesus in this story. Jesus does something here. Now, <clears throat> here's this woman who is coming out, at, coming out at noon, drawing water. She's lonely. And Jesus goes and he sits with her. Now, I want you to know that there is something very, very risky about Jesus' move here. Okay? Taking into consideration all of the facts here. First of all, she is an unmarried woman at this, at this point. The guy she's living with, not really married to him. She is an unmarried woman. Okay? Second thing, um, the well was a very well-known place to go and pick up wives. That's what they would do. So the women would come out in the, in the beginning of the day, draw the water and things like that, you know, and the, and the men would kind of sit there and circle them like, like creeps and sit there and just like watch and see which ones are single and they would know which ones are single and they would go and nab a wife. That's how Rebecca in the Old Testament was found, right? She was drawing water, minding her own business and some what, just servant out of nowhere comes and claims her as wife, right? You know? Um, <clears throat> that's what happened. And so Jesus' move here could be seen as flirtatious. Definitely not a good look for the son of God, the teacher above teachers, the king of all kings. Not a very good look. On top of all that, we've established the fact that she believes she's bad luck and the community thinks that she's bad luck and that anyone who goes near her and touches her will be bad luck. And yet Jesus goes to her and sits with her and converses with her. And the Bible doesn't do this, but I like to think he may have even like held her hand and touched her. Jesus did not care 
about the lie that she is bad luck. Because that is just, that's just craziness right there. Jesus understood the lie that she believed about herself. And in his actions, told her the truth. He sat with her. He told her the truth through his actions. I don't care that you think that you are bad luck. That is a lie from the pits of hell. I don't believe that I'll get any of that bad luck because that is a lie. Here's the truth. You are a child of God. You are loved. You are accepted. And you are respected by the king of all kings. And he is willing to sit with you. He is. That is the truth. That is the truth. Five husbands or not, that is the truth. When he talks about, he, he talks about this, he, and it's a very, very famous verse, and I want to read it one more time. He says, he says, where the heck is it? <laughs> um, it says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, she is thirsty. She is thirsty for love. She is thirsty for acceptance. She is thirsty for respect. Jesus' truth is the cure for that. It is only the love of God that can fully fill the gaping hole in a person's heart. It is only Jesus. It is only through that relationship. And here he is sitting with her, hanging out with her. Here's the truth, my friends. Whatever lie you believe in your heart, in your mind, okay, whatever the voices are telling you, you're not good enough, you're not, you're not smart enough, you're not, you don't matter, none of that is true. That is a lie. Here's the truth. You are a child of God. It means he cares about you. He sees you. He, he's close to you. He doesn't believe any of those lies that shame tells you in your head. He doesn't believe any of that. The truth is you are loved and he will show you and he will speak it to you. You are accepted. You are respected. You are all of those things. That is the truth, my friends. He is the ultimate person. There is no boyfriend, there is no girlfriend, there is no wife, husband, or child that will be able to fill the loneliness in your heart. There is only one ultimate person, that is that Jesus. Jesus' truth is the cure to loneliness. Third question, final question. Final, final question. Where can we find the cure? Where can we find this cure? In Jesus, of course. All right, let's bring it down a little bit and let's, let's look at this tangibly. Where can we find the truth of Jesus in our lives? In the, sh- in, 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 um, <clears throat> in the, uh, the short answer is it's in God's community. It is in God's community. Here's the thing. The church is Jesus's conduit. The church is is described in the Bible as the bride of Christ. If anything, we, the body, we are Christ's wife, in a sense. I know it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard for me too. Maybe Pastor David has the answer. But um, 
<laughs> it means that we, that it, it means that Jesus' truth is, can be funneled through his bride. In my household, if I have something that I need to tell someone else in the church, but I'm not home, and you come over and you ask my wife, okay, she will tell you the truth in full. I have complete and utter reliance upon him. It may not be exactly what I said, but you'll get the idea of it, but that's the truth. And so, folks, it is God's community that is the dispensary of God's truth. Here's the thing, folks. We've established that shame comes from an authority figure's voice in our life. There's only, way, there's only one way to wipe out an authority figure's voice in your head. You introduce a greater authority figure. It is, it, it's, it's, it's that simple. And you, the church, you have the power to dispense some of that truth. Now, I want to caution you, not your truth. Okay, not what you believe about yourself, like, yeah, I'm, I'm all high and mighty, things like that. We're not, talking about, we're not talking about that kind of truth. We're talking about the truth that is actually real, actually true. Here's how it all works. Um, man, I don't really want to do this part, but... Um, my final year, my final decade, in my 30s... I've been on this journey to try to find out how to truly cure this loneliness. How do I get Jesus' truth in my heart and for me to actually believe it? How do I do this? It's not a matter of just flipping on a switch. I wish it was that easy. And so I've been searching throughout my 30s with the support of my wife and my pastors and, and such. I've been looking for the answer to this question. And, you know, I've been getting pieces of it. But um, there was one event that happened that really gave me a huge breakthrough. So I, I, I told you before that I lead a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And that course, though taught by me, is actually led by my core team. They, they do a really, really great job. We have, we have like six to ten people who have just devoted themselves to become basically small group leaders within the, 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 uh, the bigger program. And they do all the big real work. And so we were sitting together during a training session. And I decided to do something that I'm going to call a truth circle. I'm claiming this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Some of you may have actually done part, a part of this exercise with Kevin Butcher, okay? Um, and basically, the whole idea is that you have, you, you have a piece of paper, and on one side of the piece of paper, you're supposed to write down all the parts of yourself that you want people to see. And this, this uh, when Kevin Butcher did it, he, um, he was trying to make it so that, you know, um, it's, it's about the false self and the real self, that kind of thing. Um, I turned it into something slightly different, right? And so we start that way, and on the outside, we write all the things we want people to see, and then on the other side, how we really are. It is the ultimate test of vulnerability. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, this terrified me. I'm a pretty open person. If you ask me a question, I will give you way more information than you want. Okay, I am that kind of a person, but this terrified me because this flies in the face of everything that I've been taught as a leader. Okay, I've been taught 
that, yes, you can be vulnerable, but don't be too vulnerable. Because if you're too vulnerable, they will lose respect for you. I risk that. I put that on the line because I felt the Spirit prompting me to do so. And long story short, my gamble paid off. And so here's, what's, here, here, here's how it went down. So I have a mask. And um, I'm going to see if lightning will strike twice. So on one side of my mask, the outside of my mask, this is what I wanted you to see. I wanted you to see that I was smart, that I'm unflappable, that I'm driven, that I'm lovable, that I am loving, that I'm respectable, that I'm a good communicator, a great leader, mature, and genuine. That's what I wanted you to all see. I'm about to put my junk out for 300 people. <laughs> this was not easier in first service. It's not easy now either. Okay. And I shared this with my team, and I turned it around, and I said, I want you to see that I'm smart, but I actually feel really stupid most of the time. I don't feel like I know what I'm doing 90% of the time. I'm awkward. Um, I am unworthy to be a pastor here at Metro, especially among such prestigious pastors. I am easily the least one. I, uh, I can be unrelatable. I'm scared a lot. And of course, I'm lonely, inadequate. I want to be genuine, but I feel like I'm a poser most of the time. Um, I'm unattractive. Um, ladies, do you know that your men have body image issues too? I feel unattractive. I'm unsure of myself. I feel weird. So I put it out there. Silence. And then the most beautiful thing happened. The church went to work. And somebody pointed out, pa Pastor Mike, I don't find you socially awkward. That surprises me to, to, to hear that you believe that. And Pastor Mike, we have a lot of great pastors on staff. It's true. But I find you very relatable. And I'm closest to you. And Pastor Mike, and you're very attractive. <laughs> oh, the, the, the healing that went in my heart that day. <laughs> Folks, I want to challenge you this week. I want you to do a truth circle. Do it in your small groups. There's no small group questions this week. It's to do this. I have it all like mapped out for you how to do it. Okay? If you don't have a small group, do it with family. 
do it with friends and allow the church to help dispel the lies that you believe about yourself. Now, I want to make this clear. You are not supposed to speak out against things that are actually true. Okay? Like you're not just saying that, you're not, you're not just saying that somebody's attractive just to make them feel better. That's not, that's not the goal here. The goal is you're supposed to speak truth, stuff that they believe about themselves that is just absolute lies in your mind, the way that you have perceived them. Okay? And so <clears throat> what you will see is you will see God's truth flowing through you and into the other person because you, church, you, Metro Church, you are a conduit of God's love, of God's acceptance, of God's respect. Amen. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy Spirit, you are amazing. You are a spirit that connects individuals who have nothing to do with each other. You connect us in the spirit of Jesus and you connect us through the spirit of brokenness as well. And Lord, a lot of us in this room right now struggle with shame, the voices of shame. A lot of, a lot of us in here struggle with loneliness to various degrees. There's a lot of love that needs to be put into hearts. There's a lot of acceptance and respect that needs to be put into hearts so that your people will be whole, Lord. And we know that that only comes from you. We are simply the mouthpiece. So Lord, I bless the people in this room. I bless their efforts to, to heal and to be healed. God, be with your church this week. We pray all these things in your name, amen. I've got a couple of next steps for you. Um, for those of you who are, uh, pull out your communication cards, okay? And you'll see these next steps on them and any of them that kind of apply to you, go ahead and check that off. The first one, the first next step is that I am, I am committing my life to Jesus Christ for the first time. If you don't know this Jesus that we talked about, the Jesus who sits with people, the Jesus who is present, then check that box off. We'll have, one of your pa- we'll have one of the pastors contact you and we can have a conversation about that. The second, second thing is that I commit to doing this truth circle with either my small group, with some friends, with family. And if you are truly alone and truly lonely and you have nobody in your life, call, uh, check that off and tell us that you would like to connect with a pastor. Hey, I would love to do a truth circle with you. Okay. Um, third, I will attend Advent services starting when? This coming Wednesday at 7.30. Hey, um, we're going to celebrate every single week up to, up to Christmas time on Wednesdays at 7.30 to um, prepare our hearts and our minds to welcome into the world our Lord and Savior who sits with us in our brokenness. And finally, I will bring a lonely friend to our Christmas Eve service. So the very last week of December, on the 24th, that's a Tuesday, instead of having Wednesday Advent service, we're going to have Christmas Eve service at the Metro office at 7.30. Um, Bring a lonely friend, a friend that you know needs some love and some care and and, and some acceptance and respect. 
bring them over. Let's see what God does. Bring them to the service.